Well, it's good to be back. I haven't preached for two weeks. It's dangerous. It really builds up within me. I'm trying throttle back, but I'm not very successful. Well, this morning we come to the last message in our series on God's design for the family. This is the second part of this series, Dressing Abortion. So uh, we had uh, kind of a, a message on... Uh, just the family in general, two for husbands, two for wives, two for parents, one for children, two for abortion. So that's how it's worked. And this is the last one before we return to the gospel of Luke. And so uh, this morning we're going to continue on where we left off uh, a couple of weeks before Christmas. In Disney's newly, re- newly released action adventure movie, National Treasure, the main character, who is uh, Ben Gates, played by Nicolas Cage, knows that someone is going to steal the Declaration of Independence. And he tries to warn the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security and the National Archives, but nobody will believe him because they say, oh, it's already well protected and we don't have to do anything and you're a nutcase and get out of here. Convinced that it will be stolen and desiring to protect it from thieves... Ben finds himself standing over the declaration, which is, of course, guarded and encased in bulletproof glass. He stands there pondering a line in the second paragraph of the declaration, which justifies the need to overthrow unjust and despotic governments. And he reads this. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations Pursuing invariably the same object invinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism. It is their right. It is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Ben reasons that the Declaration of Independence is too important to let fall in the hands of thieves who might destroy it. And since the powers of government won't do anything about it, he decides to steal it himself, to risk his own life, to risk imprisonment, so that he might preserve a document. Now you ask yourself, did he do what was right? Is it right to do wrong in order to do right? Is it right to steal a valuable document in order to protect it from those who might destroy it? Would it be right to risk your life or risk imprisonment to preserve a document? Well, the fictional character Benjamin Franklin Gates thought so. And this made me think. It made me think, how many human lives is the original copy of the Declaration of Independence worth. Obviously, the words and what it stands for is worth far greater amount than the original document itself. But how many lives is that original document worth? Would you let your son, your wife, your daughter, your husband die? So that old document could be preserved. If you had to choose between the original declaration being burned up or having someone, you know, and love die, 
what would you choose? Well, the choice is not a difficult one for those who understand that human life is the most valuable treasure we have on earth. There is no document, there is no gem, there is no relic or artifact which is as valuable as any single human life. If you take that information and combine it with the fact that in the future, God will destroy the entire earth and all it contains and it will all be burned up anyways, the declaration is going to be destroyed. No matter what. People, on the other hand, have eternal souls and eternal destinies. Every single human person will spend eternity in heaven or eternity in hell. And so for a person with a biblical worldview, things, even very valuable things, are not worth even one human life. And this brings us to the topic of abortion. In a previous sermon, we established the fact that according to God, people are people from the womb, from conception. And that to kill somebody in the womb is to commit the sin of murder. This means abortion is morally wrong before God. And it is the church's responsibility, since the church is to be the pillar and support of the truth, to let the world know the truth. Because the world has been lied to. Since the Roe versus Wade court ruling in 1973, which legalized abortion in America, some 50 million babies have been killed by abortion. That is more than the entire population of the state of California. Or you could take a million people from each state in the union and kill them. If you did that to Idaho, no one would be left. That's all there is there. It'd be a ghost state. I know some of you here have had abortions. Or maybe you have encouraged someone to have an abortion or help perform abortions. This sermon is not intended to make you feel guilty or to condemn you. There is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. If you know Christ, you are forgiven. His blood cleanses you from all unrighteousness. So please do not feel guilty about what God has forgiven. Now, if you don't know Jesus Christ, you are under the condemnation and wrath of God, whether you've had an abortion or not. And you are a murderer, whether you've had an abortion or not. Jesus taught that even the sin of anger is the same kind of sin as murder, just to a different degree. And so you're under the just wrath of God. The solution, the cure, is to repent of your sin, place your faith in Jesus Christ, realize that you cannot save yourself, that Jesus died on the cross, suffered your death, paid the penalty of your sins, endured the wrath of God, and that through faith in him, he is willing to credit you his righteousness. If you are willing to turn to him in faith. Now, the purpose of this sermon is to help you wrestle through some biblical and philosophical issues related to abortion so that we arrive to a clear understanding of what we as a church and we as individuals in this church need to do about the problem of abortion. 
We don't want to be one of those churches who just sits around and complains and grumbles about the things, the evils of our society, but never does what is biblically correct. You don't want to just complain and gripe in your holy huddle. The question is, what can you do about it? And since this is a topical sermon, since I'm not really constructing it off of any text, here's an artificial outline. We'll look at the scriptures. We'll see what God says is our responsibility to do something about abortion. Secondly, we will discuss some of the very difficult dilemmas that just encompass the whole abortion problem. And third, we will try to come to some specific courses of action that we can take in order to do something about the problem, to be part of the solution to the problem of abortion. I want you to know, get ready to have your brain stretched because there are some really serious issues that are hard to think through in abortion. The easiest part is the first part, looking at the scriptures. And if you want, you can turn to Psalm 82, verses 3 and 4. Psalm 82 God speaks to us through Asaph. He reminds us of wicked rulers, how wicked rulers oppress the people and how they shouldn't oppress the people, but should be compassionate and just and non-partial towards those they rule over. But after having rebuked the wicked rulers in verses one and two, Asaph writes this in verses three and four, vindicate the weak. And the fatherless do justice to the afflicted and destitute rescue the weak and needy deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. Christians often quote these two verses as justification for doing something about abortion. There is a very similar text in Psalm 72 verses 12 and 14, where the psalmist there speaking of the Messiah talks about the Messiah and how in his rule, he will rescue the needy and the afflicted and those being taken to slaughter. You might say, well, Jack, but those are talking about rulers. I'm not a ruler that doesn't really apply to me. Well, that's why God put Proverbs 24, 11 in there. Proverbs 24:11 reads, "Deliver those who are being taken away to death and those who are staggering to the slaughter, oh, hold them back." And that's for all of us. Deliver those who are being taken away to death and those who are staggering to the slaughter, oh, hold them back. When you look at that verse, and when you combine that verse with texts such as Deuteronomy 10:18, Job 29:12, 16 and 17, Psalm 10:18, Psalm 140 verse 12, Isaiah 117 and 23, Jeremiah 5:8, Jeremiah 22:3 and 16, it becomes clear that God is concerned about the needy, the afflicted and the helpless and that he wants his people to do something to protect and provide for them. Just recently in our Sunday night class where we're uh, studying uh, how to prepare and deliver Bible studies and sermons, we even studied Deuteronomy 22 verses 1 through 4 where God says it's even our responsibility to protect and provide for animals, lost animals, believe it or not, surely not cats, (laughs) oxen, you know, things like that. And that is why Jesus rebuked the Pharisees when they they were complaining about him healing on the Sabbath. 
And Jesus, remember, references this text and says, which of you coming across a, having a son or an ox fall into a well on the Sabbath will not deliver them? You see, there was some hypocrisy going on because every one of them would have delivered their ox from a well on the Sabbath. And yet they wouldn't allow Jesus to even heal a person on the Sabbath. Point being, it's not wrong to do right on the Sabbath. And that God is concerned with even ox and how much more people. You might add this information to the fact that the sixth commandment, The commandment not to murder requires us to preserve life. And a lot of people don't realize this. When you read the commandments, you know, thou shall not murder. What you need to realize that in order to obey that commandment, you must not only do the negative that it forbids, you must do the opposite of it. So you must not only not murder, you must do the opposite, preserve life. You must not only not steal, you must be generous. You must not only not worship idols, you must worship the true and living God. They all require an exact and opposite response when they're put in the negative. And so it's your job, it's your responsibility to preserve life. You might look at the second great commandment Jesus said is love your neighbor as yourself. That is, as you would have others love you. You know, that that commandment is an important commandment because that commandment states that God wants us to treat others as we would have them be treating us. Now, would you like to be killed? No. So in order to love those unborn people in the wombs of their mother, it is our responsibility to protect them. To try and keep them from death. Texts like these and many more make it clear that there is a clear moral responsibility for the people of God to do something about a problem like abortion. Having said that, now we move to the more difficult part. The philosophical dilemmas surrounding abortion. You're at home one day, you're organizing some papers at your desk. You hear a faint sound, a scream. Sounds like it's coming from the direction of your neighbor's house. You walk over to the window, you look out the window to your neighbor's house through their window. And there you see a man with a black hood over his head with a knife stabbing to death a child with two other children standing there screaming. The mother is bludgeoned to unconsciousness, blood dripping from her forehead. What do you do? Well, you call the police. You yell. You get a cast iron pan. You get your own knife. You get your gun. You get the baseball bat. You know, you try to rescue the innocent being taken off to slaughter. You do what you can to save them, right? Amen? Let me just alter the story a bit. You're sorting papers at home, you hear the faint scream, you look out the window, and you see a mother standing there clothed in her right mind, watching as what appears to be a a doctor in a doctor's gown with a stethoscope getting a scalpel and slicing the throat of one of three children. 
You stand there in horror, wondering why this woman, your neighbor, is letting this man do this. You realize the man is now turning to kill the next child. So you call 911 as fast as you can. You can get connected to the police dispatch. And in a frantic voice, you say, there's a woman next door and she's standing there and this man is killing her children and she's letting them. And you expect them to ask you for your address so they can dispatch the police there in a hurry, but very nonchalantly. The person on the other end of the line says, well, is the mother trying to stop the man? You say, no. Does the man look like a medical doctor? Well, yes. The policeman says, well, there's nothing we can do about it. It's not against the law for mothers to have trained medical professionals kill their children as long as they give consent. But you ask, but should they be stopped? The policeman says, no. And if you try to stop this woman from exercising her right to choose, if you trespass on her property, or you physically try to restrain her or the doctor from having her children killed, you will be arrested and thrown into jail. Now, why would I give you such a gruesome illustration as that? Because it's true in the case of abortion. That is exactly what is happening in our country 4,000 times every single day. A woman can be pregnant with triplets, be in the final stages of her pregnancy, and have a doctor execute her children. And if you tried to stop her or the doctor, you would be arrested and thrown into jail. So what do you do? Do you pull up Ben Gates and remind yourself of one long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, invents a design to reduce them under absolute despotism? It is your right, it is your duty to throw off such government and provide new guards for future security? Well, that's what Operation Rescue thought. Is this a justification for civil disobedience, for civil war, to try and change things by force? Some think so at one extreme. The far end of the other extreme is to just close your blinds. Make sure the windows close tight so you don't have to hear the screams. And just say, hey, it's none of my business. You know, pull the ostrich technique. Remind yourself like Cain did. Hey, I'm my brother's keeper. And do nothing. I think most Christians would disagree with both of those extremes. Although most Christians practice the second. They do nothing. They do nothing about abortion except complain about it to other Christians. So now let's try to clarify the complication of this issue. A woman gets pregnant, often out of wedlock. And voluntarily pays to have a medical professional destroy her baby. She may be ignorant of abortion. She may be ignorant that it is a person she's killing. But usually not. I mean, come on. She may have been lied to. But listen, everyone knows that when a pregnant woman is pregnant, she's pregnant with a baby. 
There's a baby inside her and she's having that baby killed. No one tells her she has to have an abortion. She doesn't live in China where women today are forced to have an abortions. She has abortion willingly, lawfully. And her right to choose the death of her child is upheld by our highest law courts. So we learn that God wants us to do what we can within the confines of his word, within the confines of the law, to rescue the innocent from being taken to slaughter. But how can we do this if our government allows women to have abortions and no one is forcing these women to have abortions? This is the Rubik's Cube of the matter, isn't it? What do we do? Well, let's see if we can ask and answer some key questions. And I think in doing this, we will begin to reason through some of the issues so that we can form biblical strategies for doing something about it without violating the scriptures. And I want you to realize that many people are adamant against abortion. They quote verses, but they often quote them out of context and they don't quote them in relation to everything else the Bible says. And in doing that, They really bring reproach upon the name of Christ, upon the word of God, and they do more damage than good by desperately trying to do something without clearly thinking through the issue first. And so the first question we want to answer, and then we'll try to make sure we bring in other scriptural data so that we don't violate any scripture, is this. Where in the Bible... Does it tell Christians to stop unbelievers from sinning? Where in the Bible does it say that a Christian is to stop unbelieving sinners from sinning? Are we responsible to make sure our neighbors don't get drunk? They don't swear. They don't use the Lord's name in vain. They don't commit acts of fornication, immorality, look at pornography. So God wants you to do that. What is your responsibility in that area? Well, if you know your Bible, you know that unbelievers do nothing but sin. They always sin. They're hostile towards God. They live in sin. They're spiritually dead. To try and stop a sinner from sinning is like trying to stop a dog from being a dog. You think you could beat a dog or train a dog or bribe a dog into being a cat? No, it's impossible. It's futile. It's like talking to somebody who has contracted some incurable case of cancer and, you know, saying, well, you know, I'm going to punish you. I'm going to threaten you. I'm going to do whatever until that cancer leaves you. (laughs) That's ridiculous. They have incurable cancer. That's just a fact. That is a fact that has to be accepted. And to try and fix somebody and turn them from Sinner to saint by law, punishment, threat, or consequences just isn't going to happen. But what you need to realize is that there are two different kinds of evils. There is sin against God, and then there's sin against society or social evils. And this is where it gets complicated, because sometimes God and the laws of our country align. Sometimes they don't, and sometimes they contradict Let me explain these differences. Our laws say you can get drunk, you can swear, you can use the Lord's name in vain. That's acceptable. Now, Christians would never do that because they're governed by the word of God. And so even though the law allows it, 
we would never do it. So that would be a case where the law would disagree. Our law says, you know, thou shalt not murder in most cases. Um, and so the Bible says that too. So there, there is an alignment there. And then there's certain times when the law actually might ask Christians to disobey God's law. When that happens, then you have to do what Peter did in Acts 5.29. When he was told to stop preaching, he said, listen, we must obey God rather than men. That is a clear case of justified civil disobedience. So just so you know, when we're talking about stopping people from doing evil, if you stop an evil person from doing evil, they're still evil. And that's all they do before God. So you have to keep that in mind. Don't think that you can somehow by force or threat or punishment sanctify somebody. You can't. The only person really, though, in the case of abortion who is being forced to do something is the unborn child who is forced to die. The child has no say in the matter, is quite helpless to do anything. And this is the fallacy of the pro-choice propaganda. It violates the right of the unborn. You talk to women who are pro-abortion, they will tell you, well, listen, I have my wife, to, my right to choose. You know, we have women's right to choose. Always ask them, choose what? Make them finish the sentence. Choose what? Well, I have the right to choose, choose what to do with my own body. Well, do you have the right to choose whatever you want with somebody else's body? That's the issue. That is the issue. The time to choose what they want to do with their own body is before they engage in activities which bring another body into the picture. But if by their actions they choose to engage in behavior which produces another body, then they don't have rights over someone else's body. That is a separate entity, a separate genetic entity. So make sure if you're talking with somebody and they say, well, woman's right to choose, say, choose what? And make them say it. Kill the baby. Secondly, we might ask, who is responsible to stop sinners from sinning in society? from committing social evils. And if you know your Bible, you know that that's the government's responsibility. Turn to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, where Paul addresses this very issue. And as you're getting there, I want to remind you of some things because a lot of people read this text and in their mind, they put a lot of qualifications that just aren't there on it. When Paul wrote this, he wrote this during the time of Roman occupation. Rome was a world ruler. Rome was a wicked government system. They practiced paganism, rampant immorality, all sorts of just wretched, heinous, immoral, pagan, idolatrous acts, took money from the people of God and used it to do those things. So just keep that in mind. Here is Paul, under the inspiration of Scripture, telling Christians in the church how they are to respond to this wicked pagan government. This is what he says. Verse one. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. 
Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God. An avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection. Not only because of wrath, but also because of conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom fear to whom fear honor to whom honor here. God is telling us to be in subjection to the governing authorities as a general rule. Now, of course, this would not be to subject ourselves to the point where we explicitly sin against God. Romans 13, 1 through 7 teaches us these five basic things. Christians are to subject themselves to the governing authorities. Two, God establishes all governing authorities, even wicked ones. Three, to disobey government, even wicked governments, is a sin against God who establishes them. Four, Government is God's minister and servant to bring wrath on those who do evil. Five, we are to render to the government whatever they ask, which includes taxes, customs, fear, and honor. Christians were to pay their taxes knowing that those taxes would be used for all sorts of wicked practices. And I just tell you that because some people just don't think that's right. Well, God says it is. It's not your fault When people take the money you give and use it for evil purposes. It's your responsibility to give what is due. It's the government's responsibility to do what is right with it. It's not your responsibility to make sure they do what is right with it. Unless the law so allows allows it. It's important to note that abortion was practiced also during New Testament times. And that the writers of the New Testament knew about it. And Jesus knew about it. And yet the New Testament never says, listen, church, get out there and try and stop the Romans from having abortions. Not only that, there was a practice that Roman fathers could, after the birth of their children, choose to either raise the child, kill the child, sell the child as a slave, or throw them outside to die of exposure. And this was a common practice of infanticide. It was the father's right to choose. But it was still murder. It makes you wonder, it makes me wonder, what it would be like if fathers were given the sole say over who lived and died of all the offspring that they produced. Do you think women would deal with that? No, they want to have control over somebody else's body, but they wouldn't want the father having control over somebody else's body. We need to accept the fact that the New Testament never tells believers to try and stop abortion and or infanticide, which is practice in New Testament times. And we know that both Jews and Christians knew about it and were against it. 
For instance, Josephus, who is a Jewish historian writing from a Jewish perspective, who wrote during the time of the apostles around 37, you know, A.D. to 100, wrote, quote, the law, moreover, enjoins us to bring up all of our offspring and forbids women to cause abortion of what is begotten or to destroy it afterward. And if any woman appears to have so done, she will be a murderer of her child by destroying a living creature and diminishing humankind, end quote. Athenagoras, who is one of the early church fathers, wrote this around 180 A.D. Christians are more humane than the heathen and condemn as murder the practices of abortion and infanticide. So just like today, Christians in New Testament times knew about abortion. They were aware of abortion. They were aware of infanticide and that the pagans did that. And yet there is no instruction to try and stop them. I tell you this because I don't think civil disobedience is justified according to the scripture. It's very difficult to say the Bible supports civil disobedience in this area when the scriptures have ample opportunity. Paul, he lists lots of sins in lots of places, but he never tells us to do anything about this one. So keep that in mind. Instead, we are to subject ourselves even to pagan governments, try to work within the confines of the laws that they've established, realizing that they are established by God, servants and ministers of God. Realizing you can't turn a sinner into a saint by force, by law, by threat or punishment. We might think, okay, well, what about our laws? Do our laws allow us to do something since God tells us to subject ourselves to them? Well, there just happens to be some court rulings that speak to our responsibility to protect the helpless. For instance, in 1982, the North Carolina Supreme Court found a mother guilty of a crime because she watched as her child was being abused and did nothing. The court concluded that mothers can be held criminally liable for aiding and abetting in a crime for failing to prevent harm to their children. The court actually said this, quote, we believe that to require a parent as a matter of law to take affirmative action to prevent harm to his or her child or be held criminally liable imposes a reasonable duty upon the parent. Further, we believe this duty is and has always been inherent in the duty of parents to provide for the safety and welfare of their children, which duty has long been recognized by the common law and by statute, end quote. And that's just a no brainer. Parents need to take care of their kids. Not only do certain laws require parents to protect their children from harm, The laws and court rulings also require the state to protect children. One court ruling said, quote, the welfare of a child is a compelling state interest that a state has not only a right, but a duty to protect, end quote. So when you read that, you wonder, so why don't they? Well, Because the court has also ruled in Roe versus Wade that that human inside the mother is a non-person and then becomes a person the moment, moment of birth. 
And even though medical research shows that life begins in the womb, even though we know that a fetus is genetically a genetically separate human entity and that the fetus is human in form and though that they are able to feel pain in the womb, some laws say that the unborn aren't persons until they come out. In a recent article in the Daily News, Richard Lowry references the recent Bobby Joe Stinnett murder as a case in point. Bobby Joe, pregnant and about to give birth, was strangled to death by Lisa Montgomery, who cut her open and stole what the news described as her fetus. Very shortly thereafter, they described the police searching for the baby, and then shortly after that, finding the infant Lowry rightly asked by what strange alchemy does this occur everyone knows that a baby in the womb is a baby nonetheless a stolen fetus didn't become a baby it was a baby all along even more damaging to those who would deny an unborn baby personhood and human status is a recent Scott Peterson murder conviction Scott Peterson his wife, Lacey, was killed late in her third trimester of pregnancy. The jury found Peterson guilty of two murders, two persons being murdered, the baby inside the mother and the mother herself, and sentenced him to death because of it. The implications of such a verdict are staggering. It would render every woman who had an abortion liable to the court for murder and the death sentence in any medical professional who helped her as an accomplice. Until the Peterson case is overturned, the law has upheld that unborn are human beings from conception. So to summarize, there are laws in our country that require parents to protect children, the state to protect children, and that children are people in the womb. Nevertheless... Nevertheless, it's still legal in America to have an abortion at any time during pregnancy for any reason at all. This creates, though, huge problems for abortionists, as you can imagine, who deny the humanity and personhood of the unborn. I want you to know at this point, I just want to give an honorable mention to some things because a lot of you ask me, are you going to speak about this? And you're going to speak about stem cell research? No. Um, cloning? No. Uh, you know, artificially uh, inseminating embryos outside the womb? No. Surrogate motherhood? No. Infanticide? No. Fetal tissue research? No. Genetic engineering? No. There, I mentioned them. <laughs> but all of these issues are pretty easy to deal with if you answer... The simple fundamental question that people are people from conception and that every life deserves to be protected by the laws of the country. Once you establish that, all of those little knots just fall apart. And even with all of these inconsistencies in our law and all of the contradictions, fact is abortion still legal and you need to do something about it. And so what can you do about it? First plan of attack, get educated, get educated. 
Find out what the issues are about abortion. Read up on it. Find out. Here's one good book that I would recommend. It's by Randy Alcorn. It's called Pro-Life Answers to Pro-Choice Arguments. And it's a big, thick book, but it's really well indexed. You can find about any topic you could possibly imagine related to abortion. It's all in there, and you can read up on it. There are lots of other books on abortion, too. I'm just giving you one that, you know, would be enough to, you know, drown you. Related to that is a very fascinating field of study called biblical ethics. And and there are, again, lots of ethics books, biblical ethics books. The one I would recommend is called Ethics for a Brave New World by John and Paul Feinberg. And uh, it addresses abortion and lots of other issues related to abortion and things like capital punishment and just all kinds of things. How do you apply biblical principles to things going on in society and what are Christians to do about it? You can also find out a lot of great material on the web. One website that you can visit was created by Michael Spielman. If you don't know he, who he is, uh, he works with our youth. Um, he is uh, one of the members of Calvary Bible Church, and he actually works for an organization which is attempting to do something about abortion. He has his own uh, website called abort73.com so that would be www.abort73.com the site is directed at youth and trying to reach out to youth and give them information but if you're an adult you can go there and you can get information uh, there's some great things there so your first plan of an act action should be to get educated if you aren't know what the issues are know what the basics arguments are and know how to respond in a biblical manner secondly you can get to the root you need to you need to have in your mind you need to get to the root cause of motives for having abortions you need to get these clear in your mind because these things are driving abortion there's two primary motives first selfishness selfishness you have to make sure you understand this. Women have abortions because they're selfish. You know, they don't want to say no to their, their boyfriend. They don't want to say no to their parent. They don't want to have stretch marks. They want to have their career interrupted. They don't want to have their figure distorted. You know, they don't want to have to, you know, change diapers. They don't want to have to deal with a, being a parent. They don't want to have to deal with the bad consequences they had to deal with when they were growing up. But whatever. They're selfish. And so they kill their baby. James put it this way in James 4, 2. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. Women lust to have pleasure without consequences. And if the consequences come, they eliminate the consequences. Kill the baby. Second major motive for abortion is money. Money is a huge motivating factor. Abortion is this billion-dollar industry. And you might ask yourself this, if the government pulled all their funding of abortion, and if insurance agencies said, we aren't doing abortions anymore, and if the law said, okay, you can have an abortion, but doctors have to volunteer and do it for free, what do you think would happen? <laughs> It'd be kind of a non-existent thing. Why? Because greed is driving abortion. People lust and do not have, so they commit a murder. Third, you can get involved in politics. This is something that some people have done. I don't think this is the best way to deal with it, but 
You can get involved in politics in any range of degrees from voting to running for president. But remember, if you decide to do this, you have to remember that you cannot sanctify or save anybody by law or legislation. Remember that even if Roe versus Wade is overturned, it's not going to make people right in the sight of God. It is not even going to guarantee the salvation of those children saved from abortion. You only have so much time and resource, so you must use them in the most effective way. Which brings us to a couple other things I think that are more effective. Fourth course of action you can take is to get the truth into the hands of the populace. This is a very important strategy for the church to engage in. You know right now that if you share the gospel with a lot of people that only a few, God saves a remnant and unless some revival happens. So it'd be great if you could just go out and get everybody saved and then you know they wouldn't have abortions. But you know that's not going to happen. Well, what do you do? Just ignore it then? No. If you get information in the hands of the populace, it doesn't require that the laws be overturned, although they may be if people are well informed. It doesn't require that people be even saved. But one of the most effective ways to keep women from having abortions is to just let them know the truth. This is what abortion is. This is the procedure. This is what the baby looks like. This is what the procedure does to the baby. And many women would not have an abortion if they knew the truth. And so that's why you need to do things like speak up about it. Yeah, you're at your workplace. It comes up to tell the truth. Yeah, abortion's murder. It's the killing of babies. Don't be like the Arctic River frozen over at the mouth. Tell people the truth. And if they don't want to hear about it, tell them, listen, I don't want to hear about abortion. So as soon as it stops, I'm going to quit speaking out against it. But until then, it's murder. Don't cave in to pressure not to speak. It makes me uncomfortable you do that. And you're so condemning. It's like, well, you're so killing. You can give away books, you can give away pamphlets, tapes, magazines, articles, purchase billboard space, help to pay for infomercials, sponsor or create websites about the truth concerning abortion, financially support or volunteer for crisis pregnancy centers that share the gospel and tell people the truth, hand out pamphlets outside of abortion clinics and on and on. You know, we support, um, as a church, Avenue's Pregnancy Center. Uh, today in the foyer, you'll be able to go out there, and there's a table out there. They'll give you some things you can do and some practical things. Just get some information. Find out what you might be able to do. Fifth, pray. Just put this on your prayer list. As a, It's a big deal. It's a big deal. It's worth, you know, praying for frequently. Just pray that God would do something. Overturn the law, make people aware, you know, just shock them into reality, save everybody, whatever. Pray, pray, pray. And sixth, preach the gospel to the lost. This is important. You know, there's a lot of social organizations out there that are against abortion, but they don't bring in the gospel. That's why we support 
avenues because they don't just say, you know, abortion's bad, but they just say abortion's bad. And let us tell you about Jesus. In order for it to be a ministry, Jesus has to come into play. And once a person has repented of their sin and given their life to Jesus Christ, they won't want to engage in immorality, which produces pregnancy. They won't want to put to death their children. And they will desire to obey the word of God. And this does not mean that there are no professing Christians out there who support abortion. There are many. But I'll tell you this. There is no true believer who truly understands the scriptures which supports abortion. And so those are some of the things you can do. Get educated. Get educated. Get some truth out there. Get involved in something. Do something. Take some sort of course of action. Don't just sit around in your holy huddle and complain and I really hate that abortion thing. Oh, isn't that terrible? I just read in the paper this and I read the paper. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's all this griping and this complaining and there's no doing. So when you leave here today, you ask yourself right now before God, what does God want you to do? You decide in a course of action and then you do it and be part of the solution. And remember to be part of the solution in the fruit of the spirit. Listen, people who don't know Christ live like it. And they're trying to condemn them and make them feel bad for doing what they have no power to stop doing is not the course of action. They're the way they are because they've been blinded. They've been lied to. They've been deceived. So it's your job to bring Jesus into the picture, bring the truth into the picture. And then after that, see what God does. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you just for the light it brings to bear upon the ills of our society, specifically abortion. Father, I pray that Calvary Bible Church as a church would actively participate in trying to be part of the solution to abortion, that each person here would, in whatever sphere you have put them in, speak up for the truth, help spread the truth. And Father, just do whatever they need to do in order to be part of the solution. Father, we pray that and when we do this, we would do it in the power of your spirit and in the fruit of your spirit, displaying love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. That we would not let our emotions and our pain and anguish over the death of the unborn cause us to be ungodly and to disqualify the truth we're trying to stand for. Give us self-control. Give us grace that we might be lights in the world and reflect you to society. And Father, we do pray for those women who have had abortions and who are hurting. We just pray that if they know you, they would know that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that you have forgiven them. Father, for those who, who still need a Savior, I pray that they would realize that it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. That your wrath abides on all unbelievers until they repent and humbly submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So, Father, help us to spread the good news. Help us to be part of the problem, the solution. And, Father, may we trust you for what you will do in all of this. In Christ's name, amen.